welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Thanks for joining us in our Great Communicator series where we're talking with some of the top church leaders in the country about how to be effective preachers and teachers. This week, we're hearing from Max Lucado. Max entered ministry in 1978 and has served churches in Florida, Brazil, and Texas, and he currently serves as the teaching minister of Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas. Max is America's best-selling inspirational author with more than 145 million products in print. His latest book is Help Is Here, Finding Fresh Strength and Purpose in the Power of the Holy Spirit. But before we hear from Max, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help us if you left us a review. Now let's hear from Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. So Max Lucado is uh, a preacher, teacher, communicator, writer, all those things that you heard in the introduction. Uh, but gosh, I mean, what a storyteller Max Lucado is. And so, but I'm, I'm going to get to that. First, I want to just say, too, when you when you approach the task of teaching and preaching, in particular preaching, um, what do you, where does the process begin for you? Cause you're preaching on a regular basis. Where does it begin for you as you begin to think towards that Sunday message, how far away, that kind of stuff? Mm. Well, um, by the way, thank you so much, Ed. Uh, I'm really, really grateful for the chance to talk about this topic. I, I, I love, I love the whole world of the whole pulpit world, you know, all the preaching, the teaching, the study, everything involved with it. And, and thoroughly, thoroughly appreciate the opportunity to, to swap ideas with some, uh, some folks and to maybe to be an encouragement because this, it could be hard work, you know, it is. Um, so, so I've, I, um, am into a pretty good rhythm and, uh, probably for like the last 15 years, uh, have been in a rhythm where I'm able to, uh, land on a sermon series, which is a challenge sometimes in and of itself, but, but I'm able to, uh, land on that sermon series about four or five months in advance of when I begin preaching it. And, uh, it, it, because about 15 years ago, there was a sabbatical I was able to take and, and get ahead. I've been able to kind of maintain that and stay ahead of the game. And so, uh, Consequently, I have about half of the sermons prepared uh, for, let's just say, a 12 or 13 week sermon series before I, I begin the sermon series. And, and I've come to learn that's pretty unique. Um, you know, forever I was finishing my sermon on su- Saturday morning for the Saturday night service. And when I, when I was able to t- create that space is when I found like that I could really um, enjoy the process more in and, 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 and that extra time of the sermon being finished and not needing to be preached for about six weeks. It's extraordinary. Uh, the difference because mm. it can, it can marinate. Uh, I, I have experiences in life that I'll go back and thumbtack to that sermon, uh, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, I come across some insights, maybe some scriptures that I thought, oh, wow, that fits in that message. And so right now I'm in that type of, of rhythm where I'm able to uh, identify the sermon series and, and then prepare about half of the lessons before I, before I begin preaching them. And that, that's really a game changer for me. So, so how much of it 
is done, how far ahead? I mean, it sounds like a lot more than you used to. It's certainly a lot more than I'm used to. Yeah. So, but give us a little more detail. How much, how far? I would say at least 50% of the sermons are complete. And when I say complete, a complete manuscript, uh, all of my sermons are candidates for books. <laughs> I've been yeah, accused right. of having no unpublished thought, and that's probably <laughs> true. Uh, yeah. Because and knowing that ultimately or eventually this particular sermon will need to be a chapter in a book, then then I just go ahead and type the whole thing out. When I first began preaching back in the early 80s, I was an outline guy. I just had notes scribbled on the index card, and and but now I've I've I, I've I type up, you know, 2,800, 3,000 words, 3,200 words, uh, knowing it's going to ultimately be a, a, a chapter in a book. I might as well go ahead and get it in good shape. Mm. And so uh, that that is finished. Uh, like, for example, just this morning, uh, I worked on lesson number eight in a series on the life of Elijah that I will begin the sermon series, Ed, in three weeks. So wow. I'm, I'm quite a, again, I know this is really rare, uh, but no, no, it, it's, it, it's unheard of. It's not really it's rare. Unheard it's unheard of. of. Yeah. I, I've never heard. I mean, everyone else is talking about what they're doing Wednesday and I know, Friday. I know. <laughs> and I get that. And that was me forever. And yeah. I guess that the reason that when you asked me about, you know, uh, I, I, I kind of read into the, or I, I, I took advantage of your question to say, uh, I would suggest the one thing that has helped me more than yeah. anything else in all these years of preaching is to get a huge head start okay. on, on a sermon series and, and whatever it, I just had a conversation with a guy the other day who was asking, is it worth it for him to, uh, approach his church leadership and request a, a study break because he feels like he's just, you know, cramming for exams every Saturday night. And I said, by all means, do whatever it takes. If you can get a six week study break to give you some, you know, breathing room, mm -hmm. uh, so that you can truly just live with that scripture or live with that story or live with that Bible character for, for several weeks in advance. That to me was the game changer. It first happened to me in a book called, it eventually became a book called facing your giants. And it was a study of the life of David. And this was back. It was, I remember it sometime around nine 11, uh, Ed, um, that, that I had a study break and I used it to get way ahead on that sermon series. And I was stunned how more relaxed I was, mm. uh, I, I, you know, come Wednesday or Thursday before the weekend message, I had to go back and review it because it was so long ago that I'd prepared it, but boy, that spit and polish on Thursday and Friday was uh, a delight. And I would go into the service on Sunday, really feeling like I'd prayed over the message and prepared for the message. It, it's worth it. I believe. Yeah. It's fascinating. Cause I, I would tell you, I don't, do, I don't do that. I don't have the discipline to do that, but cause so sometimes I'll preach a, a sermon. I'm two or three weeks out and I'm two or three weeks of thinking of illustrations or, you know, things of that sort. And then three weeks after I preached a sermon, I would see what have been a great illustration for that. And if I had just prepared that five weeks earlier, I would have been able to include that in. So I can see why it just opens up in a, a wide array of new things to say, oh, this would fit. So when you, you know, I'm assuming you're working on computer, do you have like these files and you can go back to, oh, I can add something to that and I'm going to do that in six weeks and I can drop that in. How do you update as you go? Uh, I write it. I write everything out longhand. Uh, I, I use 
if you'll allow me just to reach over and grab one of these, this is uh, if those people who are participating in our message, you know, viewing it, uh, I use a flip tablet and I write it out longhand, double right. space. And uh, I know after all these years, how much, how many of those pages uh, will translate into, I get a 30 minute message and how many pages I can write it's about 22 of those and that'll turn into a, a, a 30 minute message and i hand that to my wonderful assistant who has learned to decipher my horrible handwriting and uh, she will enter that into the computer and then from then on i'm working from computer and then when i have ideas i'll go back to the computer and i'll you know add that story or add that scripture but it's right there in the computer and I organize it under a file like Elijah. There's a file that says Elijah, and then I number them. And uh, I, I have pretty good recall as to what the key point is in each of those messages. And so if I come across a story, uh, I can take that story and I can insert it into that sermon. And it, and it seems to work. And can I just quickly add? I Please. realize what I just said is a bit of a luxury to many pastors, okay? When I came to the church where I've served these many years, we were about a three or 400-member church, and I was the third person hired. I was There was a staff of two people, and then they hired me as a senior pastor, and then one of the two left. <laughs> and so, so I didn't have a good track record. And I remember, and I know very well, what it's like to lead a, a medium-sized, mid-sized congregation or smaller yeah. church. It, it's it's very time-intensive and demanding. So maybe what I'm describing is a bit of a luxury because once we had a larger staff, more staff people, I was able to have a little more elbow room. I had an right. executive pastor. You know, I had a better team. So I, I, I get that. I acknowledge that this could be a luxury. Uh, that happens as as the team grows. Uh, I do think it's worth pursuing, if at all possible. Yeah, but you could do the the, the level of pre planning. Um, it's not like you're adding more work. It's more like you're you're backing up the timing on the work. Yes, sir. Uh, so and that, and that my, seems doable. My conversation with the uh, young pastor about a study break. I said, "Well, let's just brainstorm. It, you know, do you have? It could it be maybe during a summer, or could it be?" Uh, could it be guest speakers from around town? I said, I, you can count on me for one or two of those, you know, uh, or, or, you know, maybe there's a retired pastor who would like to come in uh, and, and needs, you know, to be honest, a little honorarium and can work for six weeks. So there's ways to create a, a gap of, of study uh, that, that I think make it doable for people of any size church. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're right, probably the study leave may be a little bit harder to do, but partly what we're even with this series, this great communicator series, we are recognizing that people are in different experiences, but we're gleaning so much from the conversation um, about best practices. And this is super helpful. The your longevity of preparation is fascinating to me. So talk to me how long that how many hours I should say, not necessarily because they're spread out, but how many hours a week are you in study? I actually know that we're recording this during your study. So I know you sometimes break your rule. I won't tell anybody. I'll um, do anything but... for Ed Stetzer. I'll do <laughs> anything. You, well, we're sorry. By the way, I should mention we're very excited uh, that, you know, you've been, in, we've had the privilege of engaging you at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. But how, how many hours a week does Max Lucado spend working on sermons? All day Monday is blocked for sermons. 
All day Tuesday is blocked for anything, hodgepodge. If somebody comes up to me after church and says, could I get 10 minutes with you? I say, okay, next Tuesday. And we just squeeze them in. I mean, right. it's like run, you know, I, Tuesday is my day. I mentally say, okay, I'm just here to, to do whatever needs to be done. Wednesday, I come back with another half day of study. And then Thursday is a full day of study. I really try to take Fridays off, but we all know I'm, I'm as guilty as others. If I've not done the work I need to get done, I'll use a Friday uh, to do it. But I would say Monday, half day, Wednesday, full day, Thursday. So two and a half days. And if I can get a good two and a half days, I, I think I can uh, prepare prepare a message, uh, you know, that that's uh, pulpit worthy by God's grace uh, for Sunday. Two and a half days, so 16, 20 hours. And we, we can't, we're hearing a lot of numbers around 10 to 15 to 20. I think yours might be on the higher end. And I think, I, I wonder if a part of it has to do with the way you're preparing. I mean, you're in way, to, you know, when I was younger, it was Chuck Swindoll would preach the sermon's book, preach the sermon's book. And now it's Max Lucado, preach the sermon's book. And it's, it's, and I love that. We love talking to you about him because you've been a gift to the, to the church, but that probably, I'm guessing, impacts some of I your think, preparation. I think, I think you're spot on there, Ed. I think knowing that this is eventually going to be presented to the publisher as an idea or a manuscript, uh, or it's going to go to my editor, I think I just say, you know, I'm going to put in the extra hours now and, and, and get it done. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk some about the structure of that preparation. So when we talk some about the longevity, uh, what does it look like? A Max Lucado message when you're standing up there with your notes, is it, how are the points laid out? How do you get to those points? How do you flesh out those points? Just walk us through what you do every week and help us get a picture of that. I like to get a big idea uh, for the sermon series, a theme that, that is a recurring theme. Uh, for example, with Elijah, and I use that as an example because it's, it's on my mind. Uh, I landed on the theme steadfast. I've always loved that word, steadfast. It's just a good old English word, you know, steadfast. And, and I believe of the many things Elijah teaches us, he teaches us how to remain steadfast when you're outnumbered. And in our world today, oh my goodness, do we not feel outnumbered? And so there's a lot of great parallels. So once I landed on that, and I will say that took, you know, three or four days of reading through the story of Elijah, getting reacquainted and so forth. Then I go back and uh, uh, begin the working out each, each message. But my goal, Ed, and this was, this is, I think, helpful. If, if the theme is a steadfast faith, then what does the story of Mount Carmel teach us about Elijah's steadfast faith? What does his retreat into the cave uh, under, uh, you, you know, in, in, in the Sinai desert when he's despondent and, you know, wanting to give up? What, what does that say to Lakato or what does that say to our, our church about how to have a steadfast faith? So I try to be pretty stubborn with that question. What does each one of these have to, each one of these incidents have to do with creating steadfast faith? So I've even gone so far as to take a question like that and write it out and stick it on my uh, computer screen. So I'm reminded not to chase rabbits uh, and, and, to, and to, I want to bring every message back to bear to answer that, 
that one question. Okay, and so I let, me, let me to, ask you, so make sure I understand. So when you're saying like the steadfast faith, that's the theme of the entire series yes, and each sir. individual message. Okay, I got you. Yes, sir. Right. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. No, no, I, yeah. I, was, what, I didn't track it, but that makes sense to me. So yeah. that's the overarching series theme. Uh-huh. And then you start sewing it into the individuals. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Now, I, I love character studies. And so I, I think that's a great way to tackle some of these topics. One of the challenges of a character study is that some of their, it's hard to find sometimes what is the central theme because so many different things happen. But if you can find one, I, I think that that really helps. And so then I, I, I just dig in and uh, I, I like other pastors, I have a you know pretty good library and I'll create a book of just about everything that's been written in English on the story of Elijah, uh, commentaries, uh, you mentioned Chuck Swindoll, Priscilla Shire. I'll, I'll find everybody who's that I can find. I'm sure I've overlooked some, but everybody that I can find and I'll, I'll buy eight or 10 books and I'll sit there and read what each person said about, uh, this particular event in the life of Elijah. Uh, and also I've already jotted down some of the thoughts I have about the, that event in the life of Elijah. And soon a message uh, begins to emerge. And uh, I write it out in longhand, give it to Karen, and she types it up. Okay. All right. So the, the series theme, and then I want you to come down even a little bit more into a granular level. So now it's you're, I know you're, you're, you're months before you're preaching it, but what does it look like to build an outline for you for that message, individual message, not the series, but the message itself? Yeah, I appreciated what you said about Andy Stanley because he's great about an opening. He truly is, and I think I don't, we didn't say we didn't say that on recording, but we're, we talked to him about the just the ability of his introductions are just stunning. Okay, okay, well they are. His his introductions are great. Well, oh, let, let me just back up. You're, yeah. I was kind of going down a, a part of your question that, okay. that you really didn't ask. For me, the outline consists of just what they taught us back in uh, communications at Abilene Christian College back in 1971. <laughs> say it, say what you're going to say, say it, and say what you said. I've never quite gotten away from that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say it. I want to give it a, a, a summarize the whole message in one sentence. That's a great tip I was given many years ago. Uh, say, s- declare what you're going to say. You know, the story, if you, if you struggled with depression, you have a friend in Elijah. Mm-hmm. Does that surprise you? We never thought Elijah, Elijah, who stared down the 450 prophets on Mount Carmel. So then I'm digging in. But you know what depression is like. Then I might tell the story of my mother who battled depression her whole life. My dad called it the blues. He told my brother and me, when she's like that, just leave her alone. And I I might retell that story. And you can relate maybe to Naomi Judd, who died by suicide just a few months ago. Why? And I I found a great quote or a powerful quote from her life. And then here's here's how Elijah found himself in a cave of depression. And so I'm into the message. I'll tell about Jezebel and Ahab. Got to set the context again, but then let's follow him as he goes down all the way to Sinai and retell the story of the uh, still small whisper. But then I want to conclude with uh, answering the question, what do I want the audience to know? What do I want the audience to feel? What do I want the audience to do? 
again, that's kind of homiletics 101, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What do I want you to know? I want you to know this, 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 I want you to be able to retell what happened to Elijah uh, that led him into depression. Uh, what I want you to feel, I want you to feel God's compassion. Look how God came after Elijah. Look how God pursued him. You're not alone. You think you're alone. You're stuck in a cave, but you're not alone. But what do I want you to do? Well, God told Elijah, you know, go back, uh, appoint Elisha. I have 7,000 more who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Uh, what do I want? What does God want you and me to do? Well, I think he wants us to get out of the cave, to head back, to trust him, to receive him, get back into fellowship, you know, those kind of things. So, um, that, that's a strong introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, then unpack the story. Uh, what do I want people to know, feel, and do? And uh, that's that's kind of it. Okay. So um, tell me about how you bring in, and how do you? I mean, even here, even in this interview, you started telling the story, and and I could I was tracking with Max, and <laughs> so how does Max Lucado? Uh, prepare to tell a story. There's certain unique things that are just not duplicable, duplicable about Max Lucado, but we all can be better storytellers. What, what do you do to make those, that storytelling effective? Hmm. I wish I knew the answer to it. I've, Is it just I've natural for you? Yeah. I've always loved stories, Ed. Okay. I always have. I have a memory of um, running for some student council office when I was uh 14 years old, I guess it would be middle school or high school, and uh, getting up and telling a story and my campaign speech and watching how all the other kids perked up. Mm -hmm. And it was a story that we've all used about these, uh, this father who had six sons and he gave each one of them a log and told them to set that log on fire and they couldn't get the log on fire. And he said, now bring it all together, put them together. Let's all work together and set it on fire. And all of a sudden, all the logs were ablaze. If we all come together, you know, we can set things on fire. I mean, if we've it, that the kind of story, you know, that you can find online so quick. Uh, but I do recall Ed saying, wow, people really listen to that story. And then I've loved stories. I've loved stories. I can be accused even of early on having too many stories in my sermons, you know, instead of teaching a passage. Um, well, I'm struggling to find a good answer. I, I, I okay. think I do have a natural bent yeah. towards stories. I no, read I mean, them, I, it, I collect them. It's yeah. a gift to it. But so how do you, I mean, give us some, cause I agree with you. There's just, it just flows from you. I mean, we've spent time together and everything is a story with Max Lucado, but help me to think about, or think with me about how then do you decide which stories to use? How then do you, um, find the stories? Um, th those kinds of things. I think the caveat is I have been guilty of, of a story being so good that it was going to go in that sermon, no matter what point I was trying to make. <laughs> Searching well, for a yeah. text now that you got a story. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. This story is so good. My uh, six-year-old granddaughter came running in the other day and uh, she said, 911, 911. And she was so cute. And she said, Max, her four-year-old brother, my grandson. She said, Max, uh, is stuck and he can't give, get up. We live on three acres. And I thought, Oh no, he fell in a ravine or something. So we ran outside 
And as we're running, I said, Rosie, what happened? She said, well, he filled his pockets with rocks and his pants fell to his ankles. Well, I started chuckling and sure enough, we get there. And the only thing separating Max from the pavement was his Spider-Man underwear. <laughs> and he was squatted on the ground. He was crying. And I said, Max, stand up. And when he stood up, the pants stayed down. And sure enough, he had put, he had placed rocks in every, all four pockets. And, uh, and, and so I said, you want me to help you? And he said, yes. And so I went over and I unloaded his pockets and Ed for the life of me, I was going to tell that story the following Sunday. I don't care what I was teaching on. <laughs> I was going to tell that story. It was too good. And I didn't want to risk dying and going to heaven and not telling that story. No, I, I think I'm always on the hunt for yeah. a story like that. I mean, that one illustrates so many different things, right? Right. Totally. I, I came out of that story and I said, what's keeping you from moving forward? What weight is holding you down? So here, here are two or three big ideas. I think on stories, Yeah, great stories are personal stories. There's no comparison. Great stories are personal stories. Personal stories can never be self-promoting. Mm -hmm. They just can't. I, I think I see this in a lot of pastors and I just want to take them to the side and say, Hey, don't, don't drop names. You know, you don't, don't, try to sound impressive. The fact of the matter is, Ed, we're in such a unique position already. People call us reverend or they call us pastor or vicar, and we already have a title that elevates us. And then we're either in a pulpit or next to a stand, we're on a stage, we're on a platform. So everything about us says we're high and you're low. We don't mean that to be the case, but it just is. We need to do everything we can to counterbalance that. So it's, 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 it's essential that we poke fun at ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if, and if we ever tell a story that, uh, that promotes ourselves, that right. distances us from right. the audience. Yeah. So, so I think yeah, those two personal stories, stories that make fun of yourself, yeah. you know, have fun with yourself. Uh, don't take yourself so seriously. You don't have to impress anybody. And then also be, be honest about your own pain. Be honest about your own pain. Don't don't load every sermon with all your problems. Right. But if you can acknowledge that you have a mother who battled depression, which right. I will say, uh, though I myself, I, I don't think I need to fabricate some story that I've battled depression. I've had mood swings, but I've not like the people in the church have. I don't want to, but I think I can talk about, I am acquainted with depression because my mother was, see, that's an example. I think of an, of, of an illustration that, mm -hmm. that is, that is really helpful. Is this helpful, Ed? Oh, very much helpful. Um, how many illustrations per sermon mm. typically, and how do you decide? Yeah, I don't have a formula. Okay. I don't, I would say three or four. Okay. Three or four. Um, I would say uh, most of the time I open with a story because a story grabs people's attention. I would say, I think this is a little surprising, but I would say uh, most of the time I will inject a funny story midway through the message because people have been sitting there for 15 or 20 minutes. They need something to get them to take a good deep breath, to wake them up. And uh, nothing does that better than laughter. So I'll, I, I, I've been prone to put a joke 
two thirds of the way or midway through or tell some funny story on myself midway through. And then uh, I conclude with a story. I love a strong story at the at the very end. Mm -hmm. But I'm forever on the hunt with them. Yeah. Where uh, do you hunt? Yeah. There's no place I don't hunt. Okay. Really <laughs> you like, I remember back in the day, there was this <laughs> book of 8,000 illustrations. I've got it. I've what got is that? It. Con or something? I forget. The yeah, name. I know. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. Now I, now I don't use that in books. Yeah, the the internet sort of replaced a lot of those internet, things. Internet. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the necessity of footnoting everything. Yeah, it, totally. Is, is, has made, uh, and we need to, we need to footnote everything. We need yeah, to. Yeah, don't, don't tell, don't tell someone else's stories as if they're your own or your life or things of that sort. That's, yeah. Right. We don't right. agree with that. But the, you just need, I mean, if you're doing a story, I've never seen you start a message without a story. Right. So, and I'm sure you have, but I've never seen you. So you start with a story, humorous story in the middle, key story at the end. That's three stories a message. That's, or illustrations, we could call them illustrations or stories. Yeah. There's not always stories. So that's, you know, what is it? If we have 12, 13, 14 a month, yeah. that's, yeah. that's a hundred a year. And a lot. to be honest, I mean, with Max Lucado's story ability, ability people are going to remember if you reuse the story, that's a lot of illustrations. It's a lot to come up with. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, it's, it's one of the most challenging parts, I think, of, of my teaching style. Now, there yeah. are people who are, what would the word be, Ed, more didactic, more yeah, sure. uh, just tell the, uh, stick to the text, never deviate, tell what it says, history of the scripture and so forth. And I try to do that more. Uh, I, I think, I think we all land on our style, what works mm -hmm. best for us. But yeah, I consequently, because I so depend on stories, both for preaching and writing, I'm always on the hunt. There's yeah. So no talk to us about know. how you work and engage the biblical text in that context. And, um, cause I've seen you kind of do it, weave the narratives together. I've seen you do well, several different approaches. So when you're, you're, you're working through Elijah, right. And mm -hmm. You're bringing these texts into your weekly messages. Uh, I, I focus on the story, but I know I've heard I've heard you preach. You're, we're working through texts. What does that look like? How do you prepare the biblical text and bring it forth in your message? You, you know, after all these years, it it, it flows naturally. I don't okay. really have a particular formula that I follow. Uh, but let me say this: What if I am able to reduce this weekend's message down to a single promise? Mm -hmm. that's what I do. I'm sitting here thinking, what do I do? Sometimes we don't know what we do until someone asks us, but that's what I do. I think, what is my takeaway? What's the one thing I want people to know? Uh, and what I want them to know is that you're not alone in your depression. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the greatest prophet in history battle depression, but here's what you can do. You can come out of the cave. Uh, and so once I've got those three or four big ideas, Ed, kind of like the big rocks, you know, right. in the jar, right. then I go back and I think, oh, wait a second. What was that story? What was that great quote from Charles Spurgeon where he said something about the bow cannot always be taught. And so I go dig back and I, oh yeah, I know where that was. And, I, and, and, and I've, I've got a folder called depression. And I actually found that quote. And in the process, I found another one from Martin Luther about, he said, if you're feeling depressed, go and hang out with your P 
pigs rather than stay alone in your house. It's a great wow. quote, you wow. know, but his point was get out yeah. of the cave. And so yeah. that's what I'm doing. Ed. I've got my three or f- I've got my promise. I've got my two or three points. Now I want to go back and adorn or, or, or decorate this sermon with, with illustrations or stories, whether out of my own life or ones that I can use from, from history. Okay. So, um, a lot of the challenge that for a lot of preachers is, uh, they love the Bible. They, they, they love to see God work among his people, but preachers and teachers sometimes struggle with, um, the preaching being compelling. We've all seen sermons from people who love Jesus and who love the word of God. And yet you went away saying, I don't, you know, I don't really know that that moved anything. Yeah. Uh, and again, we can say with the Holy Spirit's job and, and, yeah. and, I, and I do think that it is important, the Holy Spirit's job. But how would you encourage uh, maybe young or new preachers to build messages that are compelling, that draw people in? I mean, that's such a phrase I could use for you. You just draw people in. Um, I, when, I, when I preached at your church, I was so nervous because you're like the master storyteller. I put in more stories. And even as I did more stories, I just watched your room just respond to you. So how would you give advice for those young or new preachers to draw people in to find the message compelling so they want to apply it and live the word of God in their lives. Two or three thoughts come to mind, Ed. Number one, I've heard it attributed to Charles Spurgeon, but I don't know for sure if he's the one who who said it or just made it famous, but preach like there's a broken heart on every pew uh, has been a real mantra for me because there truly is a broken heart on every pew, even though most churches don't have pews anymore. But uh, and then secondly, uh, the mistake I see made more than any is in an effort to make too many points, we make no point. In an effort to say so much, we say so little. Uh, there is a story about a, a pastor's son, the son of a pastor, and the father requested that the son summarize in a telegram. This is back in the hundred years ago, but summarize in a telegram, the sermon on Saturday night and send it to the senior, to the father. And that was his way of teaching the son to, 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 there's nothing wrong with a long sermon, but there is something wrong with a sermon that's trying to say too many points. Mm -hmm. What's your, what's your main point? What's your main point? I have a great editor for my books and she requires that I do this. She'll ask me to summarize the whole book in a sentence. And that's a challenge when you're studying, you know, the life of Joseph, what's the summary of the life of Joseph in a sentence, but that's a good exercise. Uh, And so I think those preach like there's a broken heart on every pew. See if you can summarize your whole sermon in one sentence, and it's better to make one point well than 10 points poorly. So Mm -hmm. try to try to go a little deeper in that one point. Uh, Good communication is really saying the same thing, but from a variety of different ways, Mm -hmm. Uh, doing so with stories, doing so with poems. I I still read poetry. I love to share poems or verses or telling history lessons. Uh, So it's saying the same thing, but just come at it because people hear things in a different way. Um, Yeah. And, and you, um, some, some of the communicators talking to are very point driven, you know, point one. Uh, and, and, you know, point two, and you actually know there's like a pause and a pivot at that point. 
Um, you have you seem to have more turning points in your messages rather than those distinctly outlining things. How do you think about working through a 30 to 40 minute message so that there are waypoints along the way? How, mm. how would you describe it? Yeah, there's an emotional ebb and flow uh, to the sermon. Uh, I think I think you begin a sermon by wanting to uh, become friends with your audience, uh, acknowledging there's a broken heart on every pew, acknowledging some people are in church and they don't want to be, acknowledging people are passing through tough times. What can I say to to just put us all at ease? Uh, and say, let's be friends. Let's 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 just spend a few moments uh, talking through this topic. Uh, and then I I think it it works at least for me, Ed, to speak to the head for a few minutes, mm -hmm. and then speak to the heart mm -hmm. for a few minutes. Again, as long as we're talking about Elijah, let me tell the story about. Here's our context. Remember, our hero has just come down off Mount Carmel, and uh, he goes straight to Jezreel. And uh, Ahab has to go report to Cruella DeVille, you know, and she's going to get upset. So I'm giving the con. I'm not trying to do anything except communicate, impart information there. And then there's a pivot. And I say, don't we expect Elijah here to go back against Jezebel like he's already done when Jezebel announces that she's going to destroy him? But he doesn't. He doesn't. Now, I would see right there, Ed is a great opportunity to go from the head to the heart with a question, something like, are you ever surprised by your own reaction to stress? Are you ever disappointed in yourself? Or does the fog ever come over your life unexpectedly? Boy, it did to, and those kind of questions, Ed, are, are really important. They're, they're this, the, uh, the connective tissue between getting from head to heart mm -hmm. and then back up to head. These little turn, these questions are so helpful uh, to, to, to connect a, a message together. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're focusing a lot on, on your use of story and illustration. And I, I want to ask this in a negative way. Um, a lot of times when I'm listening to pastors or just people and they just tell stories and the stories are, I just get trapped in their long story. Yeah. We've all felt this way. We're like, uh -huh. okay, what, what you got to get to the point. Um, I, I don't find that I, I still stay, I'm just engaged as you tell the story, but my guess is that you must have a way to make sure that your stories aren't too long and aren't too, where people are like, okay, what's the point of this story? Because we've all felt this way. Preachers can, can yeah. tell stories forever. And, you know, I just, I just walked down the hallway here at Wheaton college and I see professors, you know, the students are in classes and they're Tell them there, and sometimes a professor will just get on me. They'll just get off on a rabbit trail. You're not doing that. How do you make sure you don't do that? Because I'm guessing along the way you've said one or two times, you know what? I just went off on a rabbit trail there, and that story didn't work. How do I tighten this? <laughs> what, what do you think? Early in my preaching, somebody gave me a copy of the book, and this is going to date probably you as well, because you you will remember very well Paul Harvey. And the yeah. rest of the story. Remember I literally was going to, I was literally going to say, now, you know, the rest of the story talking to you at some point. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got two little paperback books. The guy was brilliant. Was. The rest of the story, little paperback books that his son created based on that series. And I can recall getting so excited about sharing those stories, Ed, that I would 
tell the story and then I would look up and 15 minutes had passed. And I had spent 15 minutes telling a story and that's not what people come to. The story right. must serve the promise or the message of the text. Okay. The story has to. For me, again, this is all personal, uh, but if a story is longer than one page of my manuscript, it's too long. It's too long. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, here's a, a great tool, and that is tell a long story, but it is the story of the sermon. Come back and refer to it. Uh, last weekend, I preached a sermon, again, about Elijah, uh, about uh, how Elijah prayed for the rain to come after Mount Har Carmel uh, because he knew God had said there will be rain. And so I talked about praying the promises of God. He went back up on the mountain. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed seven times, always sending that servant to uh you know, look to see if, if rain was coming. But I started that sermon by telling about a, a cooking class that my wife and I went to when we were at a resort for our 40th wedding anniversary. I did not want to go to that cooking class. I had never taken any cooking in my life. I don't want to learn to cook, but I did everything that chef told me to do because I acknowledged he was the authority and I wasn't. And it was a fun story to tell. I kind of worked it out. And I referred back to that story three times during that mm. sermon uh, because I'd already told it. I didn't have to reacquaint them with the name of the chef, where we were. I'd already invested, you know, six or seven minutes telling the story. So I could go back and say, just like I did that day with the chef, remember, I trusted him. What if we do the same with our prayers? God has promised that if we come to him and ask him, he'll respond. I did that with the chef. I'm going to do that with God. You know, those kind of statements. So in that case, Ed, I, I would have to go back and look at the sermon. But I think that was the only story. But I just used it several times. Woven. The narrative was woven, woven throughout through, your perfect, message. Perfect. And, and I've seen you do it where you weave the text together. You keep coming back to, you weave in the story. And then you, and this is where I was going to talk about Paul Harvey, those who don't know, was this commentator <laughs> and he'd tell a story. And it was always something you didn't know. And he'd end with, now you know the rest of the story. Classic. And you seem to often, maybe not often, but I've heard you do on more than one occasion, you start telling the story. The story's interesting. It ties into the text. It ties into the message. But then you have the, you do have a sense of big reveal at the end, like Paul Harvey. Now you know the rest of the story. And people are going, oh, and then you bring in your main point to draw people to some response to the Lord or some action. So what does that look like in your notes? Like is... Is it like, come back to this, come back to this? I mean, give us to us the mechanics of that kind of storytelling. In my notes, it will be word for word. I right. really write it out, uh, Ed, and uh, looking for, for the, for the, for the zinger, for right. the phrase. The zinger, uh, okay. Uh, an example, so I, I guess the best way for me to communicate this is to just keep using examples. But I was... I was uh, on a flight uh, one time, and there was an, a fly buzzing around uh, inside the plane, and it was driving we passengers crazy. Uh, and, and somebody turned to me and said, why does the fly fly on a flight? It was just the greatest little line. So I started the sermon, and the sermon was about grace, Ed. So why is that fly 
flying on a flight. And I kept coming back to that. That was a treasure. I mean, that little sentence there sticks with people so well. And, and, and I tied it in to the teaching of the Apostle Paul about grace. Why do we strive? Why do we work? The plane is going to support us. The plane supported the fly. The fly made no progress. He, he did not uh, journey anywhere he wouldn't have anyway. But he was just buzzing around using all that energy. I don't know. Maybe he was you know, thinking that he had to stay busy. And you can really milk a little story like that. Uh, but to me, finding that phrase, why does a fly fly in a flight, is pure gold. And so at the end of the sermon, I say, remember the fly. He was flying on the flight and he didn't have to. What about you? What about you and me? Why don't we sit down? Why don't we rest? And boom, you got it. But it'll take, it'll take me quite a bit of time to find the right question, the right phrase, the right way to, to wrap that up. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I go in up on the pulpit with my manuscript because I don't want to risk. I don't want to risk messing up that transition. Fascinating. Fascinating. Clearly, the level of intentionality. These are not off-the-cuff stories from Max Lucado, and I think uh, how they're crafted and more. So, thanks for taking the time to. I mean, I think I think a lot of folks are going to be helped. And and again, I would encourage listeners not to jump in and try to turn into a Max Lucado level storyteller. But areas we can grow. I'd listen more to his preaching as well. Uh, and grow in that. I mean, he's, you're just uniquely gifted, Max, but but I think we can all learn and do better. And thanks for taking the time to talk about well, this. Well, you're, you're kind. I don't, I don't know if I've helped at all. I feel like oh, I, I did a lot of, of am, you know, rambling, but if I did, I'm, I'm thankful. Thanks. Thank I love this topic. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you. You've been listening to Max Lucado. You can learn more about him at maxlucado.com. Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews like this one, as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcasts. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.